Life with God is a series we're in in the book of Leviticus, and uh, if you're like me, you watch that video every week, and I'll never forget the boils on that one guy. Uh, that, that video is, is really getting us a, con- a bit of a context for what's happening in the book of Leviticus. The people have come out of Egypt. Uh, they're in the wilderness with this God. They don't really know. They've heard stories about him, and now they're learning how to do life with him. And God is saying to them, I am holy, so you're going to be holy. And we define holiness as a term that's often misunderstood. Uh, holiness is to be in a class by yourself or a cut above. Uh, so around the throne room as the angels are crying, oh, holy, 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 what they're saying is uh, you're, you're in a class by yourself, you're in a class by yourself, you are in a class by yourself, God. And every attribute, he is a cut above. Whether it's love, mercy, purity, that's who our God is, and that's who he wants us to be. Not in some religious sort of mean-spirited way, but in a way that reflects the image of Jesus Christ. And we've been on this, this journey, learning from the book of Leviticus what that means and how do we approach uh, a holy God. And today we're going to be looking at one of the, of the festivals or the feasts um, that, uh, that were, were celebrated by the people of God. It's in Leviticus 16. So if you've got your Bibles, turn there to Leviticus uh, chapter 16. I'll get there in a second. Um, companies spend a lot of money uh, creating logos or trademarks to convey in a positive way, uh, sometimes in a humorous way, uh, what their company is all about. The product that they're selling or the service that they're providing, uh, they want you, when you see a shape or a color or a graphic, to immediately connect it with them and, and that, that would be a positive thing. And so you don't even have to see the name of the company. You know who they are. And this works very well. As you see this one uh, logo that's up on the screen behind me. Uh, you know what the swoosh is. You know it's Nike. Nike comes from the Greek word that means victory. And, uh, and what Nike wants you to, to, to think about is that if you want to be successful, you want to do it with one of their products. Or you know, wearing one of their, their pair of shoes or uh, whatever it is. Nike is all about success. And the swoosh comes from this mythical goddess, the wings of this myth, mythical goddess. And uh, Nike, Nike wants, what the message is all about victory and success. Here's another one that you'll recognize. The apple, right? When apple first started, they chose this apple because the apple represented knowledge. Um, and, uh, and over time, now it's, it represents creativity as well. It's another meaning that's been added uh, to this, this particular logo. And uh, Apple is hoping that, uh, that when it comes to technology, uh, that you'll use one of their products and that it'll be quick and it'll be fast and, uh, and you'll, you'll think positively about them when you see this logo. Here's another one that, uh, that strikes different reactions in us. Uh, the Golden Arches, the M, obviously for the beginning of McDonald's, and what McDonald's is hoping when you see this is that, that pleasure and joy will rise up in your heart because you all want a happy meal. At least that's their hope, uh, that you'll, you'll indulge in a quick meal and stop by McDonald's, and, uh, and that's, what, that's what this logo is all about. And then there's this one here that you may not recognize. Some of you may recognize it because you saw it this morning, okay? Uh, the Quaker on Quaker Oatmeal. Where this comes from is, you know, back in the 1800s when you had these Quaker communities, they were known for being honest and giving you a fair shake. That, uh, that they, they just had good character, great reputation. So if you saw a Quaker on something or you bought something from a Quaker, you know you were getting a good deal. 
And so this logo goes on oatmeal, or that name goes on motor oil, that is, is to communicate to you that you're getting a fair shake, you're getting your money's worth, uh, and that oatmeal, I hope, was good. I had it every day in boarding school. I won't touch it again, but I'm sure you had a good time eating it this morning. Uh, companies pay a lot of money uh, to, to create these logos so that you will say, I want that. I want success. I want knowledge. I want joy or pleasure. I, I want a fair shake. And, uh, and they work very hard to make that logo bring up positive uh, feelings and, and, and sort of draw you in to purchase their products. Now, there is another logo. There's nothing, nothing to do about products, but it's, it's the most famous logo or symbol uh, in the history of the world. It's this one here. You'll recognize it very well. It's the cross. You'll find uh, the cross on, on jewelry, on chains or necklaces, on rings. Uh, you'll see it at the top of a church. You'll see it in a, in a, in a cemetery. Uh, people will tattoo crosses on their bodies. Uh, it's a symbol. And uh, when there was this, this, this early church movement, as they were getting going, as they were beginning to, to get their message out, over time, the, the logo or the trademark or the symbol that began to represent their movement was the cross. Now, who thought that was a good idea? Because... Uh, the cross really was, it began during, the, the use of it began during the, the Persian Empire. It was used for capital punishment. Uh, the Persians were the first ones to use the cross. The Greeks used it even more. Alexander the Great uh, performed quite a few crucifixions. And the Romans, they perfected it. It was a deterrent to rebellion. Uh, death on a cross is an excruciating, slow, humiliating death. And... The cross today for us doesn't necessarily conjure up those images or those messages. It's a very positive message to us. And a lot of people, I mean, Christian or non-Christian, the, the cross is something uh, that, that they're attracted to, which we, we've lost the scandal or the offense of the cross, uh, the, the original use of that cross. I mean, think about it for a moment. Some of you have been around long enough to remember an old hymn where you sang, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. I mean, what if that song was at the electric chair, at the electric chair where I first saw the light? Well, that'd be weird, right? Can you imagine inviting your friends to church and singing that song? That just would be like, oh, that's, a, that's just a little strange. Or what if up here on the platform, uh, instead of a cross with white ribbons, we had uh, a gallows with a noose hanging from it, and when someone began a new relationship with Jesus Christ, they, they attached a white ribbon to, to the rope on the noose. That'd be odd. That'd be morbid. Or instead of singing the wonderful cross, you know, we would sing the wonderful gas chamber. It, can, you, can you feel it? It's like, ah, that just sounds kind of morbid. That's the message of the cross. That the message of the cross is death. It's, it's, it's capital punishment. And who thought that it was a good idea to use that as a symbol for a new movement to draw, try and draw and attract people to say, yeah, I want that. Well, the answer to that question is that would be God. It was God who thought of that. In fact, in Genesis, you will see foreshadowing and a pattern all pointing to this symbol that is, is easily recognizable in our day. 
from Genesis all the way to Revelation and Leviticus chapter 16, what you're going to see is explicitly this pattern laid out in this, this festival, this feast called the Day of Atonement. It's, and it's all pointing forward to a time uh, when Jesus Christ will go to the cross and offer his life as a sacrifice. If you've got your Bibles, uh, Leviticus 16, I want to read uh, some portions of Leviticus 16 for us to give you a sense for what's happening during this feast. And don't think feast as in you know, Thanksgiving feast. There's really no food involved. That, that word that is translated feast often in, in uh, Leviticus it also means appointed time. It, it, it's an appointment. And the Day of Atonement, atonement is an appointment that Israel would keep every year. This was an ongoing celebration or, or appointment that they would keep with God. I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. I'm going to just stay seated as I read because I'm going to jump around here and read uh, three or four sections in Leviticus 16 so that you'll get a sense uh, for, for what's happening during this, this ceremony on this national day of cleansing. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses... Warn your brother Aaron not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain uh, whenever he chooses. If he does, he will die. For the ark's cover, cover, the place of atonement is there. And I myself am present in the cloud above the atonement cover. If you remember when I showed you the pictures of the tabernacle, the tabernacle is divided in two sections. There's the holy place and the most holy place. That's where the the, the ark of the covenant is. And the high priest went in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, one time a year, and it was on this day, Day of Atonement. Drop down to verse, uh, verse 6. Aaron will present his own bull as a sin offering to purify himself and his family, making them right with the Lord. Uh, then he must take the two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by, by lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by lot to be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness... The people will be purified and made right with the Lord. Now I'm going to drop down to verse 15. Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process, he will purify the most holy place and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites. And the last section we'll read begins in verse 20. When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. And this is God's holy word. Atonement. It's, it's not a word we are, are used to hear. We don't use it often. 
And so I want to make sure that we understand clearly what atonement means. When you break the three syllables out, what you get is at one meant, or what you're meant to be one. You're meant to be one, and atonement, it's the restoration of oneness. You were meant to be one, and when there's a break in, in relationship or a break in oneness, atonement is to restore that oneness. And you and I, we, we understand, we may not use this word often, but we understand the need uh, for atonement. Uh, in a relationship you might have with a spouse or with a good friend, if they do something to offend you or hurt you, there, there can be a break in that oneness. There can be, uh, there can be some offense taken. Um, you know, imagine, if you will, Trina, my wife, saying something just so rude to me or doing something so awful that it hurts my feelings. Happens all the time. I just wanted to share. Actually, rarely happens. Uh, but imagine that. Um, and, and so I have a sense where there's a wrong that's been committed, and I, I want that, that relationship restored. We, we need atonement. And you, you, you know the very same thing. That it could be a, a, a marriage relationship. It could be a, a, a relationship with a son or a daughter. It could be someone at work. We, we know that when we are offended, we want it made right. And we've kind of thought out in our heads of how that is supposed to happen. And sometimes we play that out in our heads a little bit too long. Uh, but we want the wrong made right. We want restoration of oneness. Most, most time it's, it's on our terms. And, uh, and that happens in a variety of ways in, in our lives. And the people of Israel in the wilderness were smart enough to realize that, yes, this is needed on the horizontal level with, with each other, but more importantly, this is a need for us in our relationship with God. That when we sin, when, as Laura read for us, when we sin against people, when we sin against God, whether it's you know, lying or cheating or misusing something or... Uh, or uh, demeaning somebody, marginalizing a person, ignoring someone, uh, or, or speaking rudely to someone, or, or whatever it might be, that not only is there a potential horizontal break in relationship, but this actually breaks, this sin breaks the relationship with God. And that there is a need for the restoration of oneness. There is a need for atonement. So what God did with his people that he brought out of Egypt he provided a way for oneness to be restored. And it was a day of national cleansing, this day of atonement that I, that I read about from Leviticus chapter 16. And how that day went was you had this high priest, in this case it's Aaron, he's going to go into the Holy of Holies, and before he can even go in there, he's got to sacrifice a bull for his own sin, and he's got to sprinkle that on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the atonement cover, it's also called the mercy seat. Uh, sprinkle blood uh, for that animal on that, uh, that mercy seat. And then there's two goats that are, are chosen, and one of them is going to be sacrificed, and that blood's going to be sprinkled, and one of them's going to be a scapegoat. And the sins of the nation are going to go on that goat. And, they, and, and lots would be cast to determine which goat, whatever happens to which goat, and that was sort of their way of letting God decide uh, what was going to take place here. The goat that uh, was going to be sacrificed would be sacrificed. Again, that blood would be sprinkled much like Aaron's uh, bull offering. And then that, that remaining goat, that scapegoat, the priest would go over to that goat and, and take his hands and, and then place them on the goat's head and confess the sins of, of all the wickedness, all the rebellion, all the sins of the nation. How long would that take? And it would go on the goat. 
And then someone will be specially chosen to take that goat out of the camp into the wilderness and all the guilt and shame of Israel would be on the goat. It'd be led out and uh, that goat would then die in the wilderness. For the people of Israel, this was a day that they got a clean slate. It was a reset day. This, this day of atonement was a day that all that guilt, the heaviness of all that shame could be lifted off because it was all going on the goat, pushed out into the wilderness. It was a day of atonement. Now, there's nothing magical about the goat's blood. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, tells us that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. Take away sins. Here's what's happening. God is putting a pattern in place where someone's life or something's life can be a substitute for yours. Because when we sin, what happens is, is this God's wrath is poured out to this rebellion and something or someone has to die. So in this ceremony of the Day of Atonement, the goat takes our place. And we get the reset button because all of our shame, all of our, our guilt is put on the goat. It's on the goat. It's sent out. And we get a clean slate until next year. And we got to do it again. And then the next year, we will, we, we will do it again uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're living in the wilderness. And you go in the promised land. You're going to celebrate this festival again. You're going to do it again. Every year, you have to have this ceremony of restoration of oneness. Now, I want, to, I want you to understand this very clearly by teaching you uh, two very big words that you'll never use again, but I think you'll appreciate the concept of what's happening here. This is what's happening here in this Day of Atonement uh, ceremony. The first word that I want you to, to learn is expiation. Expiation emphasizes the covering of guilt through a payment of the penalty. What you do when you expiate something, you expiate a problem. You cover it. Raise your hand if you put on deodorant this morning or you wish you had. <laughs> because what you did is you expiated a problem, a potential problem. Because you know that you sweat and there's an odor to your sweat. And if you don't have a, a deodorant, that, sweat, that, that sweat's going to stink and that stink is not going to be a good stink. And so you, you expiate the problem and you put deodorant on in the morning so you don't stink. That's the hope, right? That's expiation. The goat, the goat is, is the sacrifice of the goat is a covering for you that lasts a year and then you got to put deodorant on again so to speak. You gotta put another covering on. This was an annual thing. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, gives us the idea of what's happening here because it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's the blood that's going to expiate our problem so we don't stink this year. Now remember, this is all going to point towards the symbol and help us understand why would this early church choose as its symbol an instrument of death? Well, it's all being foreshadowed for us in the pages of Scripture. A life for a life. So expiation is a very important word to, to, uh, to learn. 
uh, and you won't remember the word necessarily, but tomorrow when you put your deodorant on, you'll know, right? You just expiated a problem. But when you get to the New Testament, you get to another big word, and this word is propitiation. It emphasizes the appeasement or averting of God's wrath and justice. You expiate a problem, you propitiate a person. Here's what's happening in the New Testament. In Leviticus, they're doing expiation every year. They're putting on the covering so that the sin is covered and, and a life is given for their life. We get to the New Testament and God sends his son, Jesus Christ. He's called the Lamb of God. He goes to the cross. He dies a brutal, humiliating, long-suffering death on this cross and he is sinless and what he does on the cross is that he expiates our problem. And not only that, he propitiates you, meaning he averts God's wrath from you. And here's the beauty of it. He does it as a once-for-all sacrifice, which means you don't stink anymore. You do not need on an annual basis to have the covering. It's a once-for-all deal. You see, when God takes a whiff of you in Christ, he doesn't smell the stench of sin. What he smells is the aroma of his son, the fragrance of Jesus. And anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ has had a problem expiated and they've been propitiated. They have atonement. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. In fact, this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. It says, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. But here's my question. I still sin. You may not, but I still do. I find that the more, more I walk in my relationship with Christ, um, the, the less I sin, but the more I confess. If you know what I mean. I still sin. Don't I stink then? No. No, no you don't. Because... You're covered in Christ's righteousness. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, breaks us even further down for us. It says, for by that one offering, speaking of the cross, by the one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. So am I perfect, or am I being made holy? Yes. Yeah, you're perfect in Christ. And by Christ's spirit in you, you are being transformed and being conformed into the image of Christ day by day, as God is at work in you. You have been healed. You do not, in Christ, you do not have the possibility of stinking before a holy God who can't stand the stench of sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 puts it this way. Speaking of Jesus, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. That's why this early church, when they were, 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 had this symbol that started to identify who they were and the message of, of their, their gathering, they chose such a, a scandalous symbol. They chose a cross, a place of death, because it was at the cross that their sin was covered, and it was at the cross by putting faith in Jesus Christ that they were made whole. They no longer were an offense to God. God's wrath was turned away. 
and there was restoration of oneness. So here's my question for you. Who's your scapegoat? Who's your scapegoat? Who are you trusting to restore your relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, if, if, you're, if you put your faith in Christ and, you, and you've understood the, the gift that he's offered, then, then he is your scapegoat. But, but maybe you haven't taken that step. Let me ask you this. Who would love you so much they would take all your guilt and all your shame upon themselves and go out into a desolate place and die for you? Who's your scapegoat? Now, there's something that rises up in us when we're told that, number one, we got a problem with God or that we need to be saved um, or born again and, and we get offended by that. There's some pride that rises up in us because we, we think, you know, I, I'm good on my, on my own. I'm a good person. Um, you know, I'm the captain of my ship, the master of my fate. I'm fine on my own. The Bible speaks pretty clearly to that and says that we've all been marred, stained by sin. And sin is rebellion and the wages, the consequences of sin is death. That's just, it's just putting it out there straight for you. That's what the Bible teaches. But there is something in us when we're told that we have sinned and we've broken our relationship. There's this pride and this arrogance that, that says, I don't, I'm okay, I don't need that. Max Dupree tells a story um, from World War II. He was a medic that would uh, rush onto battlefields after uh, skirmishes or after you know, major battles. And as a medic, uh, they would rush onto the field to attend to those who were wounded but um, still had a chance to live. And um, they would take with them uh, blood that had been uh, given by donors. And they would uh, take the blood and, and offer to these donors to, to save their lives. And to, to allied soldiers and German soldiers. And as part of the moral, uh, moral deal of the day, if you, if you were a donor, your name went on the bag. So if you're laying in the battlefield and, and a medic comes up to you and, and they're going to save your life, you see the name of the person who don donated blood so that you could live. Now, Dupree goes on to say that over time, the medics started doing something unusual. It wasn't military policy, but what they started doing is setting aside all the Jewish blood that was, was donated and reserved it for German soldiers who were, who were wounded on the battlefield. Now, here's what they do. They'd walk up to a German soldier who was, whose life was hanging in the balance, whose life could be saved by this blood, and they would say to them, you're going to die today unless you receive this blood. And unless you receive this blood that happens to be donated by someone who's Jewish. If you will take this Jewish blood, your life will be saved. The choice is yours, yes or no. And Dupree says that Time after time, well, most of the time, the German soldiers said, I'll take the Jewish blood, and they would live. But there were occasions when a German soldier in pride and in arrogance refused to take the Jewish blood. And they would slip into the state of unconsciousness, and then they'd give it to him anyways. <laughs> Here's my question for you. Are you too proud to hear the words that you got a broken relationship. Too offended to say, I'll take some of that. Because God, from the beginning of pages of scripture, has been covering his people. 
He's been restoring oneness. A day of atonement, in which there's all these sacrifices, and I know in our day and age, all that blood sometimes kind of freaks us out. But it's all pointing to this one day when the Lamb of God goes to the cross and he offers his life as a substitution for yours. In the Old Testament, all our shame, all our guilt was on the goat. Now, all our shame, all our guilt is on the Lamb. The choice is yours. Will you allow him to substitute his life? Take that penalty. He's paid for it and apply it to your life.